Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 23 and 29 through 45 uh, is our passage this morning. We've got a lot of scripture, obviously, in our worship service today. And in part, we want to highlight the fact that the Spirit has given us such a grand and magnificent and large Bible. Uh, And this is one of the more interesting sections of it, I think. Daniel, uh, as we talked about it last week, it's called exilic literature. It covers that period of time in Israel's history when she was conquered by the nation state of Babylon and she was deported. 10,000 or so of her uh, best and brightest were were led as prisoners of war up into uh, this region, which would be uh, today modern-day Iraq, when uh, Daniel follows the lives of four men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the namesake of the book, who have risen to prominence in the royal court of King Nebuchadnezzar. And much like the Joseph narrative in the book of Genesis, they also have the ability to interpret dreams, which will be very significant right now as we read. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they had come in, came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel 
praise the God of heaven. God of heaven, by the way, is a repeated phrase, a a description of God throughout the book of Daniel. It's kind of a cool way to uh, address God in prayer. God of heaven. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power and have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And then we skip ahead to verse 29 when Daniel goes in and interprets the dream before Nebuchadnezzar. He says this, As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue An enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret to interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over all of them. You are that head of gold. But after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one in bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver and the gold to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
It is such a cool word from the Lord. Uh, I, I wanted to preach the book of Daniel this summer to do something different. And you don't get a whole lot more different than uh, this passage. Where to begin? Um, Well, dreams were a big deal to ancient people. Unlike us in the modern West, we will easily dismiss a bad dream as being the result of indigestion or an overworked mind. But in the Mesopotamian theology of Daniel's world, and, and really to a certain extent in other cultures here and now today, bad dreams were a big deal. They could be messages from the divine realm, which were being communicated into the human realm. And the belief that they, they thought that the, the gods would regularly, routinely do this, would do this. They would take the events that are going to happen in the future, and they would write their plans for the world into natural phenomena, which would also include our, our human dream states. Not everyone was qualified to interpret the signs or to interpret the dreams. That's why King Nebuchadnezzar has a a team of experts who are skilled in these magic arts and crafts. In fact, I didn't know this, but I I read it this week. Archaeologists have actually uncovered, uh, apparently the Babylonians were truly obsessed with dreams. And one of the... um, the big archaeological finds that exist from the ancient world is they had these dream books, like very large, full compilations of every dream that you could possibly imagine with an accompanying interpretation. So it was a very big deal for the people in, this day, in their day. Now, one of the fa- fascinating features about the passage, it's not entirely clear if Nebuchadnezzar thinks that his magician, astrologers, enchanters are charlatans, and he's trying to uh, point that out by not telling them the dream, or if he can't remember the dream, as is commonly our experience. And we have, we'll dream something, we have a vague recollection of it, but we can't remember all of the details. And What's interesting, so this passage is written, it's one of the few parts of the Bible that's written in Aramaic, beginning of verse 4, carrying all the way through the end of, or is it the beginning of, chapter 7. This section of the Bible is not written in Hebrew, but was written in the common vernacular of their day, which was Aramaic. And incidentally, that was the language that Jesus primarily spoke there in, um, you know, in Israel at the time. Um, Where was I going with that? Uh, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, maybe he can't actually remember all the contents of his dream. And that's why he's asking his magicians to, to tell him what it, it was. The text is sufficiently ambiguous. But whatever the case may be, one of the themes of the book of Daniel that shows up here, God is constantly putting Nebuchadnezzar under pressure to acknowledge where real power comes from. He's constantly putting this great king underneath the great, the the true king's thumb and saying, do you realize where power comes from? Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar, we didn't read it, but Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel, um, are you able to interpret my dream and, and answer it? To which Daniel replies with these words, God is able. Same thing, one chapter later. Nebuchadnezzar turns to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, Is your God able to deliver you out of the fiery furnace? To which they reply, Yep, 
our God is able. And then in chapter 6, when Daniel is in the lion's den and King Darius comes and says, has your God been able to save you from the lions in the lion's den? And, and Daniel answers, you betcha, for my God is able. See, real power lies not in the superpower of that day, the, the king or his great empire or his magicians or his military. Real power lies with the God of these Jewish captives. A God that Nebuchadnezzar thought he had defeated when he sacked the city of Jerusalem just years before. Real power lies in uh, the place that you simply wouldn't expect it to be. In the God of these simple Jewish foreign exiles. In a land that was hostile to their fundamental beliefs. And I know I've found this to be remarkably helpful in my prayer life. Um, when I am faced with situations that just feel completely and utterly helpless, one of the things I've started to do, I've just tapped into this motif and made it as part of my prayer. God, you are able. You're able. And I, and I say that multiple times in my prayers as a reminder who I'm talking to. I'm talking to the God who is able. And I know that sounds simple, but the struggles of this life are such that it becomes hard to believe that real power lies not in circumstances which can never be changed. It really lies with him. The statue and the rock. Let's look at those two things briefly. What is God telling us through the statue and what is he showing us about the rock? When I... On Friday, after the bulletin was already printed up, I thought to myself, I really should have included a picture of the statue in the bulletin, and it just skipped my mind. But So if you can just get it, use your imagination. A giant, golden, silver, bronze, iron, Statue of Liberty-esque uh, figure. Um, the statue is strange. It is a mixture of glorious, it's a mixture of shining glory and crazy instability. It's made of costly and useful metals, but also it has this impossible mixture of iron and pottery. And the weakest part of the statue is where? It's, it's at the base of the statue, the, the place where stability is needed the most all that gleaming glory above is built on this fragile, crumbling edifice. It is all built, the whole thing is built upon feet of clay. We have, we've actually in, brought that language into our vernacular. Ever heard somebody talk about having feet of clay? Usually we say, I have feet of clay as a way of demonstrating that I'm not perfect, I'm a sinner, I make mistakes. But actually, feet of clay is a way of uh, communicating deep instability and fragility. So who are these four kingdoms? Because obviously it says there are four successive empires. From the vantage point of the Old Testament, the fourth kingdom is likely the Greek empire, which began under Alexander the Great. 
rough dates for the Greek Empire would be 350 BC to 150 BC. Alexander, if you remember from your history classes, he uh, died unexpectedly and he did not appoint a successor or an heir to the throne. So what ends up happening is his great kingdom is divided among his four generals. And Israel at that time was under the, the general, the, the rule, uh, the Seleucid Empire was one of the four. And from the Seleucid Empire came the notorious king um, Antiochus Epiphanes, who ended up greatly persecuting the Jews around 150 BC and it led to the Maccabean Revolt, or I think 167 BC. But uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who will show up later in the book of Daniel, was the man who killed many Jewish people and he took pigs into the temple of God and sacrificed pigs to Zeus on the altar of the temple of God. Uh, Such a hated figure in Judaism. So from the vantage point of the Old Testament, the fourth kingdom is Greece. But from the vantage point of the New Testament, it seems that the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire, from which, from within which comes the rock of God's kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, how did Jesus begin his whole earthly ministry? By saying in the middle of the Roman Empire that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So in the, the, the New Testament vantage point would be Babylon is the gold, the Medo-Persian Empire that succeeds it is the silver. The bronze waste would be Greece. And the uh, metal, the iron legs is Rome. One thing which should astound us from this passage is the sovereignty of God. Rob Rayburn up in Faith Presbyterian in in Tacoma says, uh, think about it. What is required to have four empires rise and fall in succession, and it's been predicted before it happens. That means that millions upon millions of seeming coincidences had to take place. Babies, some babies died, and some babies lived to become great generals and great kings. And so was for every soldier in every empire's army. Some children died young, but others survived, ensuring that the right man would reach adulthood at the right time to fire that arrow across the battlefield and to lead the charge against the enemy. Like on an individual, uh, personal level, and on a grand level, we, there were droughts and famines and earthquakes and bumper harvests and plagues and wars and assassinations. All of that goes into the rise and fall of four empires. And over all of that, God reigns sovereign and supreme. He was overseeing and controlling it all. So much so that every nail on every shoe, on every horse, under every rider, in every battle, and in every war contributed its part to the victory or to the defeat of entire nations. Our God is able. Our God is sovereignly in control. What else does this statue potentially represent to us in addition to those four empires Well, I think that the statue could actually be a life-sized, 
of the life cycle of any given civilization. I should have run this by Shelton, the local history professor, before I came up with this interpretation. But it seems to me that you could take an actual civilization, a country, a nation, and they follow the, the pattern of this statue. You have a golden age, a period where there's great prosperity and great success, followed by a good but inferior silver age, followed by uh, a considerably less valuable iron age, but with great instability in the bottom before civilization is toppled. See, for the last three centuries, the prevailing mindset in the West is that if you give us enough time, things around here, they're just going to get better. Civilization is getting better. Our civilization is more sophisticated morally and culturally than the centuries before us. And thanks to scientific progress and expanded education opportunities and democracy, Basically, there's this idea that we're just going to, society's going to keep gradually but inevitably improving. I, I, I don't buy it. I think that's called the myth of progress. I think that is inverting the statue. Actually, what ends up happening with civilizations is they are subject to entropy too. They collapse, and usually they collapse after a series of glory days when the bottom of the statue is a deeply divided and conflicted people. Did you catch that? A deeply divided and conflicted people. Look at the 20th century, for example. See how quickly sometimes that gold to silver to bronze to iron can unfold? What happened to the Third Reich of Nazi Germany? It was here and then it was gone. What happened? We saw the rise and the fall of the Berlin Wall. We saw the rise and the fall of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And some of this, friends, it went, it happened overnight. It was Mr. Gorbachev, tear that thing down. And all of a sudden it, it was. And now where is Gorbachev? He's faded into, this, into the sunset. The, the, the country he was from doesn't even exist anymore. Now I think that civilizations can collapse quite quickly. Uh, Notice the crumbling base equals a fundamental instability. So there were three dominant ideologies of the 20th century, fascism, communism, and liberalism. Now, liberalism, I'm not talking about political conservative or political liberals. By liberalism, that is a political science term that's been coined to describe the liberation of the individual so that the individual is free to achieve complete and total freedom. And if you, so liberalism in that sense, again, not conservative, I'm not talking about Republican and Democrats. Um, liberal in that sense, that, that, that cultural narrative is, we are being catechized in it day after day. Um, one cultural narrative that's part of liberalism is you've got to be true to yourself. Another one is that in the end, you've got to do what makes you happy. And what makes you happy comes before social connections and responsibilities. Another one, the individual is always greater than the whole. And then another one, nobody has the right to tell anyone else what's right or wrong for them. So those are the cultural narratives of liberalism, uh, of basically European 
and American democracies. And when you think about those cultural narratives, when all you have are autonomous individuals pursuing whatever makes them the most happy, it's very hard to have much of a society fa- societal fabric when that's the narrative of the place that you live in. Um, it's extremely unstable. Uh, I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but when I look out at America, I see a really strange mixture of iron and clay that is weak. I wonder if this isn't one why some of you and I've heard it from you. You, you are afraid for your country. You're, you're afraid for our civilization. You're like, I have never, I've never seen our, our country so divided as it is right now. And I wonder if, I don't want to say that that's exactly where we are in the life cycle of the statue, but I would also don't want to say that it's not. All right. I'm probably getting in trouble for all of that. But even great America and Europe, the great empires, are probably more fragile than they realize because iron and clay makes for a very poor foundation. Next week, when we get to Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar, probably for a long time, had desired to build this image in, his sta- in the dream as a statue to himself. So Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 ends up creating a Statue of Liberty-esque picture of himself. He's, he's, the, he's the one in the dream. Uh, and, and we discover that the statue is an idol. The statue is something that all of the people are required to bow down to and pay allegiance to. Or another way of saying it, is the empire becomes an idol that all of the citizens of the empire must give obsequious obedience to. And could that also be part of the metaphor of, of, of the statue? Um, empires tend to work that way, don't they? When they start out, they're bringing order and harmony to the galaxy, and eventually we have Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader inside the Death Star, who has you by the neck and says, I find your lack of faith disturbing. And the empire makes grandiose demands and punishes those who are not good citizens of the empire. You know, that story has been rewritten again and again in human history. The empire is an idol. It's the idolization of power. And it's one that we can never bow down to. We as Christians, hopefully we recognize that we have a a responsibility to pray for all people in authority, for kings and and legislators and governors and presidents, all of them. Um, And we're to honor the offices of all office bearers. Peter, when he's writing to the early, early church, he tells them that they are to honor the emperor, which ironically turns out to be the man who actually put Peter to death was the emperor in 2 Peter 2 who said you need to honor the emperor. And they did. They honored the, the office. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, Daniel clearly honors King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they 
get involved in politics and they seek the common good. They desire justice and peace of the, the city and of the nation. And so should we. But we should never give uncritical acceptance to our nation or to a political party or to a, a captivating leader who can do no wrong. For us, there's only one leader who can do no wrong. (laughs) And there's a reason why the rock comes and obliterates all of these kingdoms. It's because the kingdom of heaven is almost always in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. I would just love for Christians when they talk about politics today to, to say more about that. The kingdom of heaven No matter where you are in the political aisle, the kingdom of heaven is usually in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. So when we talk about politics, our ultimate loyalty will never be to a political party or or to a captivating leader. Our pledge of allegiance must always be to the cross of Jesus Christ and the united monarchy of heaven under which we live Um, And if you do that, if that's where your ultimate allegiance lies, then you will likely come into conflict with the kingdoms of this world when you do not bow down to and give them unquestioned allegiance. It's happened so many times. All right, I know this is a long service. I'm going quick. We're... Let's build to the rock here. The whole passage moves toward verses 44 and 45. And I'd like to talk about the rock before we conclude. The rock, Daniel says, represents the kingdom of heaven. And we know also that the rock represents our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, What does the rock tell us about the kingdom of God? First off, did you notice it gets repeated throughout the passage how somehow Nebuchadnezzar, he realizes that the rock was not made by human hands. The rock was not made by human ingenuity, human artistry. Certainly the statue was. The statue is made by human hands. It's a work of human metallurgy and human craftsmanship. But the rock is not made by human hands, which only, we can only mean that it is supernatural. It's not the product of ingenuity. It's not from this world. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, he did not mean that his kingdom was purely spiritual or that it had nothing to do with political power. He meant that his kingdom had its origin and source of power from God, not from human power, but from the supernatural power of his Father. So it was not made by human hands. Secondly, did you also notice that the rock is the least valuable substance that's found in this dream? There's the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron. Even the clay, one could argue, is more valuable than a simple rock. Yes, the rock is the least valuable of all the substances, and yet that's the thing God chooses in the dream to characterize his kingdom. In the eyes of the world, the kingdom of God is always poor. It's always less valuable. And you could say the same thing about the church, which is a very important part of the kingdom of God. Uh, Nobody thinks like the church is much of nothing anymore. Um, Yeah, it's never something that the world thinks highly of. It's invaluable and worthless 
but it ends up being God's choice to spread and become a rock monster is what happens in the dream and spreads throughout the whole earth. Which leads me, um, oh, to say this. You know, Jesus made this point many times in his parables about the kingdom of God, how it would start inconspicuous and small, and that it would spread. Of course, this points to the ongoing mission of God through his people in bringing the good news of the kingdom to all nations of the earth. The good news that Christ has died for our sins, Christ uh, has risen for our justification, Christ has sent his spirit for our sanctification, and Christ is coming again. When he comes again, what will happen Will it be the cataclysmic stone that comes and shatters the world's uh, pyramid and and statue? Um, Or will the statue already be shattered? It leads me to the third and final um, part of the rock I find perplexing. When Jesus began his kingdom ministry on earth, he said in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in its field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds can come and perch in its branches. When Jesus was on earth, he said, the kingdom is like a seed, not a boulder. Human kingdoms are boulders. When Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom comes, It's, as a rock, a boulder that will wipe out everything else. When those kingdoms arrive, they smash the opposition. But the kingdom of God, at least according to Jesus, it's not by rock. It's by seed. It doesn't spread by force or violence. It moves forward on the basis of hearing the message of the kingdom and receiving that message and believing the word. It's It's the whole difference. You throw a rock onto the ground, and it just pulverizes the ground. But if you let a seed drop softly upon the, uh, the soil, and you let it be covered in the soil, uh, uh, you know, and covered in death, then what happens to it? it? It grows up and creates, Jesus says, it's going to create a tree that is the largest in, in all of the world. You know, it goes back to the big debate among Christians on whether or not Jesus will triumph, the, the gospel will triumph before he comes back, or will it only triumph after he comes back? But, uh, and I'm pretty agnostic on that question, but I tell you, I, I sure hope it triumphs. I hope somehow that seed, it grows, and the, the, the tree is so large and it, it, it's almost like he will topple the statue by virtue of, um, well, I don't know. I, I guess I've already said it. By virtue of a seed instead of a boulder. But, but time will tell. We'll see. <laughs> so in conclusion, Daniel has given this pagan king quite the theology lesson. He has said that your, king, your power, king, is on loan from the living God and it will not last forever. Yes, the future holds a succession of human kingdoms, but ultimately the future belongs to the kingdom of God. And that is a lesson that needs to be relearned repeatedly in every generation. Not by political power, not by human might. Neither you or your empire is going to last forever forever. 
For heads of gold always have a precarious future if they rest on feet of clay. But there is a higher king, and there is a more permanent kingdom. And to him, I hope, to him you have pledged your allegiance, to his cross, and to his kingdom values. And, and I hope that just changes the way that you, um, you go about life in the American empire. Amen.